everyone. Welcome to Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Hello. Hello. Good day. Good day. Today on the show, we are going to do part of our Ted Bundy revisit. We did a series in our very first year doing the podcast on Ted Bundy. It was quite lengthy, and it was when we had very poor sound, and we were new to this whole thing. Mm -hmm. So we have begun to revisit it. And what I did was, is I edited chunks of it. We've done two so far. This will be our third one. And we just, we play a little bit of it, which I have doctored and made sound to sound more palatable. And I edited out our ums and ahs and things like that, that we didn't edit out in, back in the day. And our and, naivete. Mm-hmm, you got to start somewhere. If you guys are looking to start a podcast, just, just do it. You can always go back like us and do a little revisionistic history. <laughs> we started at your kitchen table. That's right. We think the material is really good. And so we're revisiting it and adding more. So that's what we're doing on the show today. Number three in the Ted Bundy revisit. But first, I wanted to thank, uh, well, not thank, but I wanted to let you know that Kenzie, who was the our listener of ours, who got to listen to the sleep paralysis episode that she inspired, which was from a couple of weeks ago. And then she wrote an email and I actually, Kathy doesn't know about it, but I wanted to share it with you, Kathy. So, you know, she says hello and she just listened to the last episode and she's been really excited to tell her friends about it and everything. And what she did was she's like, you know, I've always been encouraging them to listen to the show, but if they hadn't yet, if they were just ignoring me, then I just said, <laughs> okay, fine. If you're not going to listen to the show in general, just listen to this one episode. Cause it's literally like about me and like I inspired <laughs> it. Can you please yeah. just, you know, do it. So uh, she did that. And then uh, she listened to it and said it was just really validating to hear that there was a legitimate medical condition around melatonin. Yeah. And that, you know, she, she had always, she had figured out that that was one of the causes of her sleep paralysis, but that everyone had always told her that melatonin is like this naturally occurring hormone in the body. It's perfectly safe. It's not addictive. Mm-hmm. There shouldn't be any issue. And so she was getting that gaslighting kind of from of the culture at large. And I imagine the culture at large just didn't know any better for a long time. And well, I so, think sometimes we equate something being natural with it always working. I mean, listen. Or not being invasive. Or not being invasive. I mean, you know, for example, we have a lot we have norepinephrine in our bodies to function but someone who has too much anxiety it overproduces and then it's like bah! so you know there are things that are good for us but if it's it's mass produced um it can it can we can overcorrect so it's not that melatonin's bad Mm-mm. but if it you know does something in the body that causes you know the mind to wake up and the body to be paralyzed and yeah i mean it's just it's it's misoperating and it doesn't make it bad it just means that it misfired well and the thing about us is the i mean we're all unique flowers right and so we have I'd like to think i am you are definitely are (laughs) (laughs) we have a unique structure and so everything you know messes with us differently and also we tend to think that the when we think about organic or natural when Mm -hmm. that's on some bottle or some package as it being lighter and happier and less harsh or harmful and our bodies are really way more complex than most things right (laughs) so Things that we we grow in our bodies are incredibly powerful. I mean, look how we run every day. So I yep. just I just think it's this really funny misnomer that things that are quote unquote natural are harmless. Yeah, Which, I mean that's not true at all. It's not. I mean, I've I've taken melatonin, I've taken valerian root, I've taken all of the kinds of things for sleep, yeah. and I don't have those reactions to them. Mm-hmm. But they're also very powerful. They put me to sleep. So obviously, someone's going to have a reaction to it. Someone's going to have a reaction, right? So anyway, we. She, I was just wanted to share that with you. She also said she was listening to me talk about Nightmare Detective, <laughs> the Japanese movie. Uh, she's like, oh, I haven't seen that in so long. Now I'm excited to go home and watch oh, it. Oh, cool. So, so she, you know, she thanked us and, and just said that the show brings her a lot of joy. I'm and glad. Fun well, and fun, thank you so. for sending us your idea. Yes. And sharing with, with us your personal story. And I think that that uh, when we have personal stories, it just makes our episodes that much more meaningful. And we know if, you know, you've gone through that and I shared the couple experiences that I had, we know that other listeners have experienced it as well. And that level of relatability is always comforting. So thank you. Absolutely. I think you have an article. So I know we're talking about Bundy today. 
I didn't do this on purpose, but there's a docu-series that came out on November 24th that I have not watched yet, um, but I'm thinking about watching it. Maybe you watch it with me and we talk about it, or I can watch it. It's a six-part series called City of Angels, City of Death. And it's essentially about uh, the hunt for serial killers in L.A. during the 1970s and 80s. Okay. And so I came across an article from uh, the Toronto Sun from this just a couple weeks ago, November 21st of this year, called Why Los Angeles Became Serial Killer Central in the 70s and 80s. So I'll read to you what they said. The dead were not talking. On a daily basis, their tales of horror filled Los Angeles newspapers and newscasts. The slaughter unfolding in sunny Southern California was the result of a perfect storm of demographics, a transient population, and fabulous weather. Why Los Angeles? That's the question of the century. Retired L.A. homicide detective Bob Souza tells the Toronto Sun, part of it is a large victim pool. Hollywood, the sexual revolution, it was a perfect storm. Tom Lang agrees, noting that during a 20-year stretch, cops also had to deal with the murders of 200 prostitutes. There was a huge victim pool and so many young people in Southern California at that time. And the weather is perfect. There's easy access to the freeways and desolate body dump sites, the former homicide detective says. There were no cell phones, no DNA, just shoe leather and gut instinct. Adding to the mix were the countless police departments in Southern California. Lang adds, you have to realize the police are a bureaucracy. They don't communicate well. Among the killers, the pair helped to bring uh, the pair helped bring to justice these cases. The Hillside Strangler, so-called because their victims' corpses were found around the hills of Los Angeles, so there ended up being two of them. They thought they were looking for one the whole time, but there, it was actually two people. Oh yeah. The first murder was on October seventeenth, nineteen seventy-seven, which happens to be the very day I was born. Oh. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> yeah, that's what happened when I came into the world. <laughs> I see. Uh, the victim was a working girl named Yolanda Washington. By the time cousin Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Buono, <laughs> Angelo you'll Buono, need, you'll need to stop now. Okay, <laughs> uh, were through in February 1978. A dozen women were dead. Then there was the freeway killer. William Bonin's victims were young men and teens he'd pick up. There were at least 21 to 36 suspected victims between May 28, 1979 and June 2, 1980. Bonin would eventually suck gas in the green room at San Quentin on February 23, 1996. Colorful way to say that. Then we had the Sunset Strip Killers. Doug Clark and Carol Bundy murdered at least a half a dozen women they picked up on Hollywood Sunset Strip from June 1st, 1980 to August the same year. Bundy died in prison, different Bundy. Uh, Clark remains on California's death row. Sousa says that the killers used the landscape, police bureaucracies, and varying jurisdictions to confuse detectives. Mm -hmm. There were actually three freeway killers in L.A. County, part of Orange County to the south, and as a result, there were six or seven police agencies involved, Lang says. He notes there were different MOs in the myriad murders. Some were necrophiliacs. There was instrument rape. Some took souvenirs. Some were posed. Some were not posed. We had to look at every suspect. From San Diego County to L.A., there were a staggering 45 different victims. Tom and I have been playing with this for 25 years. The series is six hours. It could have been 20, Sousa says. At the time, many younger homicide detectives were paired with investigators who had served in the Second World War. The old timers had never seen anything like it. We had to figure it out our own way. You have to leave the job, respect the job, Sousa says. It's an all or nothing proposition. They go on to talk about how there were so many serial killers operating in the greater L.A. all at the same time. It never happened anywhere in the world before. And they also go on to talk about how because L.A. is spread over 50 or 60 miles, whereas in New York, people on, are on top of one another. One murder in the San Fernando Valley, the victim may have been grabbed from downtown L.A., um, so, and like the murders themselves, fear spread. So LA was a Southern California in general was a, was a prime location for serial killers at that time. So great article. Yeah. It looks like city of angels, city of death is one season, 2021. It's on Hulu. Mm -hmm. There's six episodes. It just came out literally. So I don't know if all six have dropped, but the first episode date was, 
November 24th, which is just a few weeks ago. So I don't know. Maybe we should check it out. Yeah, it says throughout the seventies and eighties, more than twenty serial killers stalked the streets of Los Angeles simultaneously. Isn't that crazy? It's a wonder you and I weren't killed. I know, as babies. <laughs> I wasn't here yet, though. I'm just saying. Yeah, oh, I that's know. right. Yeah. Oh, that's right. It's a wonder I wasn't killed. I was. As I was a baby. in. De- I was in tr- Detroit, a much safer city. <laughs> yes. So. Much safer. <clears throat> right. Okay. So the next thing that we would very much like to do is a little segment. We like to call Horror Facts with Kath. Thank you for that. Katie. I don't even realize how good I am at this because I didn't even intentionally put this question in here for this episode. You're so good at this, Kathy. Number one. Mm. During a news conference, Diane Feinstein gave away the profile of this serial killer <laughs> by reporting and describing the evidence, such as the caliber of gun, the type of shoe, and she held up a police sketch. Okay. Got it. Number two, which decade was known for breaking horror into the mainstream in a significant way? Which what? Which decade, decade was known for breaking horror into the mainstream in a significant way? Got it. Number three. What movie is based on the true story of a young girl who passed away in the hospital shortly after meddling with a Ouija board? The case was in 1992 and remains unexplained. Wow. That sounds cool, though. Yep. Uh, don't know. Okay. Number four. This horror film went through two titles before settling on the actual title. One option was The Birthmark. Okay. And last one. What incredibly popular 80s role-playing game was believed to be the work of the devil himself? (laughs) I don't know, but we need to get it. I mean, we have a Ouija board. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much for that. Uh, okay we're gonna take a break and we'll be right back and we'll do some ted bunny discussion thanks so much for listening Hey, we're back. So we are going to talk Ted Bundy today on the show. It's part three of our revisit to it. And what I did was I have, Kathy, a little chunk from the first episode that we ever did. So the first two chunks of this where we revisit, we blew through the first segment in a three-part segment of episode one. So we have a lot of material to get through. We, We originally did three full episodes nine segments so we have nine segments to get through we're on the second one so we have we we have have some time time. (laughs) although some of them might go quicker than than others so what we'll do is we'll just listen to a little bit of it and then we we just stop every now and then and and kind of talk about what you're listening but the material speaks for itself and hopefully it's edited a little bit better now for you okay so kathy is also when we do these she's hearing it back for the very first time so we often stop to go what were we doing yeah cringeworthy <laughs> okay so here we go listen up kathy so this sort of brings us now into his teenage years where we start to now see as shannon was talking about the mirroring and what he valued we start to now see him start to act this out so at the age of 15 Bundy and I didn't I I apologize I didn't really clarify this although most of you probably picked up on this obviously when his mother married John Ted took on the last name so he was no longer Theodore Cowell he became Theodore Bundy hence the new the third identity identity, right so at 15 he starts showing signs of shoplifting um, and he was also a suspect in two burglaries at 15. So he was also, and this this becomes a, a big piece right here. He was also caught peeping into women's windows. Some seem to believe that it was at the age of 15 that he committed his first murder. And I'll explain that in a little bit. They actually don't put this together to like 30 years later. 
So Bundy was never, never mm. charged with the murder, but there was an eight year old little girl in the, in the neighborhood by the name of Anne Marie Burr. And Burr was actually a piano student of his great uncle Jack, who he and his mom were living with initially before she married John. So Bundy was a newspaper delivery boy at the time of Anne-Marie Burr's disappearance. And one morning the Burr's home had been broken into and Anne-Marie was missing and her body was never found. When they looked into this, they never suspected Ted at this time because there was really no reason to. But when they had gone back and revisited the crime scene many times, there was no struggle. And um, she would only Mm. have left with someone she trusted. And so uh, years later, they determined that that Ted and Anne-Marie actually knew each other quite well. Well, and we're in a time period, right, where it's like the early 1960s or late 1950s, where I don't think killers that were 15 were not exactly No, unusual, and people slept right? with their like doors that, unlocked, yeah. right? And their windows open right. and all that stuff. So there was no sign of struggle. He knew the house. He knew her. She knew him. And yeah, we weren't looking at 15-year-olds as psychopaths in the 60s and 70s. They were the victims. Bursnay reported seeing someone in their yard peeping into the windows a couple days prior to Anne-Marie's disappearance. So like I said, there was no Mm. sign of struggle. A decade later, Anne-Marie's relatives would tell authorities that that Bundy and Anne-Marie actually did know each other and were friendly and that she wouldn't have feared him. There's a big indicator there that he could be a, a huge suspect in this. But, you know, we didn't have mm-hmm. DNA and all that stuff going on at that time. How's it sound, Kathy? I sound a lot nicer in those days. <laughs> you sound nicer. I sound like... Yeah, you do. I'm really trying to be on a podcast and be really friendly. <laughs> and I maybe I just gave up giving a shit. I don't know. <laughs> so now you're mean? Now I'm more me. Yeah, more mean. <laughs> more mean. <laughs> Yeah, maybe uh, just more. No, you know, um, I, I, yeah, less performative. Yeah, sure. Not that I was intentionally. No, I mean, you're pretty nat. I mean, we're both pretty natural. One of the things I'm hearing, of course, setting aside the material for a moment, obviously, <laughs> we're just listening to ourselves going, what the fuck is that? We were over the phone. Yeah, we were recording over the phone. You were at home on your phone and I'm at home on my phone and recording And I remember there were a lot of delays and things. And so when I've been going back and editing this, what ends up happening is it sounds like I'm talking over you. And sometimes I am. Sometimes I was, in other words. But sometimes it was just that there was a delay. Mm -hmm. And so as I'm going back and editing, it's like, oh, I wouldn't have said that before she said that. Like, I, there's yeah. a little bit of a delay. And so it's interesting in the editing process to try to get... I've, th- I have gotten rid of certain bits and pieces along the way that mm-hmm. were not meaty. They weren't sure. really informative. They were just like us talking over each other well we were doing and we couldn't we, we couldn't, couldn't look at each, each other. other we were doing it from a distance and we were not doing it over any sort of skype or anything so you know we were guessing when the other person was done based on their articulation this part of the series though i forgot about which is just how early in his development we saw these warning signs well not only warning signs i mean he clearly behavior mur- murdered somebody at that that time and how and it's interesting how that part of his story hasn't been yes I, I don't think we have a lot of information on it and i think at this point from what i remember it's still alleged but it's a really interesting to me it's a more interesting part of his story than well all, that recent bundy movie is all about him as a teenager it literally ends when he goes off to like kill yeah, see, college. I think that's an important, that to me is a much more important part of his story, just like they did with uh, Ross, oh, I forget his name right now, who played Dahmer mm-hmm. as a kid, teenager. That was a good movie too, because it showed a lot of, you know, how does someone get there? Yeah, I really appreciate when it's the development. And mm-hmm. I think that's why, one of the many reasons why we started doing this with serial killer content is because that's what interests us too is how they develop and where they go and why I watched a movie recently since we've last spoken. I knew we were doing this episode. I knew we were, you know, over the coming months digging back into this and I just thought, okay, let's watch more Ted Bundy content because it hasn't been done 
150 times, but I haven't watched all of them. So I just thought, okay, I was browsing Tubi or something and it was free with ads. So I just threw threw it on while I was doing other stuff. It's from 2002. It's legitimately called Ted Bundy Creative. Very good. 100 minutes. What I can tell you about this movie is that it's like a docudrama based on the life of Ted Bundy. You know, it is an actor acting out. There's no stopping down. There's no mockumentary or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But they do. It, it's an odd. It's an odd duck, really, because one of the things I will say about it, it's not a good movie by any stretch of the what imagination. Is it called? It's called Ted Bundy. That was my joke. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it just it felt went right over me. It was so dull. <laughs> that was my joke that it's called Ted Bundy, like okay. legitimately non-creative. Yeah. The thing about it that I will say that's interesting or unique that they don't really do anymore in the movies that they do now because everybody's so damn intellectual is what they did was they made him very depraved. Okay. He was sexually acting out. They, not in a triggering way necessarily to me because I can get triggered by rape and murder, of course, like we all can, but they showed him peeping in the bushes and all that. I just thought it was particularly apt for this, this, uh, this chunk of the show that we're going to be talking about, because this is what you're going to go into is kind of him peeping and the sexual part of this. And they don't usually go into that anymore. They do the interviews and they talk about the FBI agent and they talk about him as a teenager and they do all of these like walk around the fact that he was incredibly depraved in Mm -hmm. his behavior Mm -hmm. sexually. Mm -hmm. The whole movie, he's like having sex with dead women. He's peeping. He's masturbating in his car. He's doing all of this very, and I have no idea, like as we go through this series, I don't remember you talking about him in that kind of way. No. So it's, it's a strange little movie in that sense because they very much wanted you to hate him. And I get why. I mean, please hate him. He was, he was, he was an awful, uh, uh, the criminal behavior is just represent reprehensible of what he did. Sure. But this movie was very like, there was no heart to it. It was just killing women. No humanity. No, no, just killing. I mean, you saw him be a narcissist with his girlfriend and bringing bringing they even showed sex scenes with him and his girlfriend where he would want her to shut up and look dead and stop talking and wanted to tie her up and it it was very i I almost uh, wonder if they took that they made that choice or that decision because i think a lot of people are over the sensationalizing of these white Male well, they were at the time. Pillars. I mean, this is 2002. So oh, it's 2002. Okay. 20 years um, ago. I mean, I kind of like that because I feel That's, like, yeah. yeah, I feel like they're, they're a lot of the Ted Bundy portrayals that have been out there, although there's this implicit, you know, yes, he's a bad guy, blah, 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 but they still paint him to be charming and good looking. And so it sends them. Uh, this message of confusion of like, oh, I kind of like him and I feel guilty for that. And it's like, no, it needs to be this portrayal, which is there's nothing likable about this dude. Right. He was a sadistic sociopath. And I think Hollywood, because we've talked about how sensationalizing and seductive narcissism can be from an entertainment point of view, we can sit with those emotions and be confused and that can be entertaining and that can be somewhat seductive in itself. But the reality is that when we put that message out there, we're really not painting these guys the way they actually are. And um, unless it's like a Richard Ramirez because he looked like a monster, it was easy to do. I don't know. You know? Yeah. No, like I said, this, this is what I'm bringing it up because this is the one redeeming quality about this movie. It wasn't a good movie, but I thought it was an interesting addition because everybody's so intellectual with Ted Bundy now. And they always, they're, they're really more concentrated. Their way they're getting around him being a sicko is by dealing with the FBI agent and making him the main character and doing it that way. And this movie, I mean, it's very 2002 in that sense that like there is no shame around him 
and his behavior in this movie. So there's yeah. that. Anyway. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I've never seen a movie like that with him where they paint him to be that way. Yeah, he was he was offensive and, and gross and awful and murdered senselessly and then was trying to bring that into the bedroom and all this. It was kind of 2002 in the way, too, where it's like at the very end, you know, the girlfriend sitting on the couch, I never knew. I never knew this was what he was like. And I'm just like, oh, geez. Okay, this is really bad. Yeah. But <laughs> but but that one part was interesting. Sure. All right, let's listen to some more. Okay. So anyway, by the age of 15, we're seeing evidence pertaining to animal mutilation violence, acts of sexual deviancy. He started becoming obsessed with fictional detective stories that had graphic sex and violence, where women were actually mistreated. And he would learn in these stories how the perpetrator got away with their crimes. And he became really obsessed with reading these stories and sort of filing away how he could abuse someone and get away with it. Hmm. So psychologists yeah. would describe him as uh, and I'll talk about his main psychologist when he's in the hospital, but they would describe him as almost bubbling over with aggression, but not yet a predator. So he was sort of working up and gaining that knowledge and filing it away. No. Didn't have anywhere to direct it. Or he had, he had to yeah, figure he had it out. Figure it out. He had a little it. bit. He had a little bit, but not to the to the extent of murdering, unless he actually did murder Anne-Marie, which we don't really know for sure. Well, it's like any it's like any new behavior in someone, right? Even if it's a positive behavior, it's sort of like Absolutely. all over the place when you first start and using 15, it. You, know? you add like <laughs> the hormones and all that stuff going on at that time. He's all over. Yeah. Um, so this is how, and also probably how he got introduced to sexuality. Because let's let's think about hmm. it. If he was probably looking at his grandfather's pornography. Now he's looking at this stuff. I, I don't believe anyone actually sat him down and had a real discussion about health, healthy sexuality with him. Most of no. the sex offenders I've evaluated, they learned about sexuality through really deviant ways and then mm. ended up mm -hmm. believing, you know, it's just a really misconstrued idea of what intimacy is and, and sexuality. So so when you hear how Bundy was introduced to sexuality through peeping, certainly. So that's his yes, own imagination, absolutely. basically. And then these detective stories is the other mm -hmm. way, right? And so when you hear that, would you say in your experience that that's a common way that predators get introduced to things like that? Like with through imagination? Yeah, imagination, or... association. I mean, we don't, not to get too graphic, but we don't know, did he go home and masturbate to these women? And then there was a, there was a cognitive right. association with being mm -hmm. deviant and that was the way he could become aroused. One of the things with that we often assess when we're looking at sex offenders is how they associate their first arousal and what that means about how they can actually become aroused. And if it's through violence or deviancy, they tend to end up playing that out. And and another thing is that many of them will do multiple rehearsals before they, meaning in their minds, before they act out. So one of the reasons they're not allowed to look at any pornography or they have to talk about whatever fantasies they're having when they're either in prison or in treatment, because those rehearsals are really dangerous because it means that they're preparing to do something again. So it sounds like he had plenty okay. of time to rehearse what he wanted to do and play that out in his mind. Right. So even if he wasn't murdering at that time, you know, cause we don't know, even if he wasn't, he was certainly peeping yes. and rehearsing <clears throat> that he, that he would be murdering or Absolutely. You know, assaulting yeah. people. In the mid-60s now, so we're looking at, you know, he's probably like 16, 17 years old. He was a student at Woodrow Wilson in Tacoma, so they're still in Washington. And he was really noted to be awkward with the girls or any kind of intimacy, which is not a shocker after everything we've just discussed. He only really knew how to fantasize about them from afar. His peers described him as very shy. He didn't date. So he compensated and this served him later down the road, he compensated by being very verbal and assertive with his teachers. So he really learned how to use his intellect to manipulate and appear confident, despite all of these really social, awkward and insecure things about himself. So this would really play out and be apparent over 25 years later when he chooses to represent himself in court which we'll talk right. about, obviously, down the road. We think his peers... His like peers didn't really no. know. He, I think he only had, like, one or two friends. I think his peers were just were like, this is just kind of a 
a wallflower sort of weird guy who doesn't kind of keeps mm-hmm. to himself. He's really, but I guess in class, he was very outspoken and direct and assertive with his teachers, which does not surprise me. You know, he was probably no. charming, but then also got away with what he wanted and challenged them. But the power, the power struggle. struggle, right? Yeah. The authority. Even with all of these alleged burglaries and violence to the outside world, other than the stuff with the girls and the awkwardness to the outside world, as he started to get older, he actually appeared very well adjusted and bright. And in 1968, which would have made him think in his early 20s, which we're going to we're going to get to his college life here. He attended the Republican National Convention in Miami as a Nelson Rockefeller delegate. So this is now we're going to pause here again. We're going to kind of move into his college life. Before that, is there any anything you want to reflect on or no, I'm just, I'm struck by the authority piece and the striving mm-hmm. for identity, you know, how we do that in our teenage years. It's that what we've, the theme I, we've sort of been striking at is this, this identity issue and, and him sort of playing at different identities and playing oh, totally he was. And, and, and it strikes me that eventually when we get to the piece where he, he begins killing people that, that we are sure that he killed, that he may have finally found his identity and and then got attached yeah, to that. Yeah, it's a good way to and, look at that. Yeah. So, we'll take another break and come back with the college life of Ted Bundy. So, there you go. That was the next chunk. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Anything to add? No, I mean, I think reflecting on the the paired association of arousal of violence and deviance especially when someone is developing their sexual identity and their sexuality, how uh, it's important to, when we talk about like risk management, when we're working with kids, when we're working with teenagers and development and the importance of having healthy discussions around sexuality. So many parents avoid those conversations or we don't know if those kids are coming from homes where the message has been something either there's been a deviant message or there's been no message at all and they have found their own way to the quote unquote truth. And I forgot that we talked about that on this episode because when I was working with offenders who were mostly, I worked with contact and non-contact offenders. So contact would be meaning that they actually did the sex offense themselves. A non-contact offender would be vicariously through watching pornography, child pornography. And when I was working with a lot of the offenders who had um, been there for child pornography, when we would do group, they would talk a lot about their early messages around sexuality and how there oftentimes came from incredibly strict conservative homes around, we don't talk about sex. Mm-hmm. That's not good. No, left to your own devices, right? <laughs> left to their own devices, and then they go with what their body's telling them f- feels good. Or what they're watching Well, and that else. leads And that leads them to stumble, somewhere else. Finding, finding something to get that urge out, which then leads to all the, these messages because no one's been there to guide them and say, hey, it's totally normal and healthy to have these feelings. Let's talk about it. So left to their own devices, one thing leads to the other. And a lot of these guys would say, would start with regular pornography and then I would just get deeper and deeper and deeper into that rabbit hole because regular pornography was no longer satiating. It needed to get more and more deviant. So, well, yeah, and we don't want to suggest that strict, you know, households that don't talk about sex end up being, you know, sex offenders. That's not a direct correlation. Of course You saw... You saw a commonality. Of, there were major correlations to like, that for like sure. A, like a no sex kind of, like sex doesn't exist kind of perception in the family. Did, yeah. W- contributed. Yeah. It was either that or it was, you know, the, the son who had a father with 20 girlfriends and talking to his son about how women mm-hmm. are just objects, o- basically. Objects, right. Or yeah. being profoundly sexually abused i mean there's a lot yes, of yes and then there's a percentage drugs. of of people who were victims themselves yeah yeah so yeah. All, all those things can contribute or can be one or one sure. of the thank you so much for that we did another chunk yay we will continue to do that 
as we go forward. But right now we're going to take a little break and come back with our horror books and watches. So we'll be right back. up everybody we're gonna do horror books and watches now okay so i know that you started the next book in darcy the darcy Coates uh four book series that we started with voices in the snow Mm -hmm. so what are you doing um so i'm i think like four or five chapters in at this point maybe a little further what's it called uh my gosh okay never mind go ahead with what you were gonna say um (laughs) The so we let we leave off like we had talked about on the episode after uh, Voices in the Snow with um, a, with an opening. There's an opening to a sequel. There's an opening to a sequel. Without we know telling that you they, what it is, <laughs> Secrets in the Dark is the second one. Okay, that's gotcha. the one that I'm on right now. Gotcha. Um, and so it's a con- you know we now know that uh, sister's still alive. Okay, and like we had talked about. They're coming into contact with more of what's going on. Um, she's starting to talk to her sister over the radio a little bit. Overall, the suspense is still really good. They're continuing to work on staying alive, work on trying to find contact with other people. Um, again, it's incredibly atmospheric, but I'm still waiting for something different. Yep. Like, got it. So you're four or five chapters in, which wasn't very long. It's actually a bigger book it's than the first one. It's a bigger book, but now we're back in the house. <laughs> like, God bless America. Again. Get us out of the and house. And I really am like, get us out of you the know, house. they're boarding up the house and there's more resting by the fireplace. And I'm like, we can't do a whole nother book in the house. I hope not. So at some point. At some point, they got either she's got to get out or the sister's got to come and get her. So there, there are talks of that, Uh but but still, there's the it's too unsafe. It's too unsafe. But their next task is trying to get to the car to get the food. Get out. But I don't need to hear any more about Doran bringing her tea because she needs to rest. Okay, fair. And it's still they still haven't actually shown us that they're having sex or anything. Nope. Because at least give me some of that. I mean, if if that's what we're doing here, darling, let me make yeah. you another tea. <laughs> as they hear fingernails scratching, the it's, most protective male I'm, on the planet like, come, is like giving her binkies and tea. Exactly, like come <laughs> on. So I'm I'm really there's one thing that has happened which I won't give away. Please don't. That because um, I want to want read this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's one thing that's happening that I won't give away that could abruptly change something right. and i'm hoping like can we just have that happen now yeah okay because yeah well and you're four or five chapters in which is probably with her writing it's probably like 60 pages or something yeah so, i'm probably about that and so not that far in but also if you're coming right off of the so here's what i see with authors but see i think that book came out literally the same year or something so she'd probably already written them all possibly yeah and so why waste time is my thought because you know harry potter books or whatever the heck you're reading you know you wait a year for the next book and i can understand the author trying to revisit the atmosphere and have a a full setup again because you've waited a long time and maybe you're out of the habit but when you've got all of them in front of you and you read them straight you're really wanting them to i mean we're in a bingeable world now so I think that books, as well as movies, they just got to get right to the point of each episode and each book. Right. And yes, I would appreciate it if the next time you talk to us about this, uh, which will be probably in a couple of weeks, that maybe they've gotten to something. Cause, and maybe I will have started reading it by then. I don't know. Not a ringing endorsement so far. So Yeah, I mean, we'll see. <laughs> I am going to read it, but. Okay. <laughs> I wanted to share with you a little tiny bit more of the haunted vagina. That yeah. We've been, that we've been, I'll, do, I'll, I'll share a chapter with you this week and then I'll, I'll try to read another chapter by next week and uh, we'll go from there. So this chapter, so when last we were visiting the haunted vagina, 
the large skeleton had climbed out of the vagina and had, you know, died in a pile of blue, red, and orange mucus. And so what ends up happening after that is she stands up, they stand up. He suggests they go for a drink. Oh, okay. (laughs) Which I thought was a funny way to go. He's like, let's get dressed and go for a drink. It'll calm you down or whatever. Okay, cool. So they go for a drink, and that was just the device to get her to the bar, get her a couple drinks in her, and have her tell her story of sort of how she came to learn about her own haunted vagina. Oh, my God. Which I can share with you basically begins when she's a little kid. And, you know, it's interesting that we were talking about Bundy in the last (laughs) chunk of this show Mm -hmm. because it's burgeoning sexuality and how we all come to it, right? Well, this woman has a haunted vagina, and apparently when she was a little kid... She started hearing, but she just thought it was normal. Like everyone had one like that, right? Just as we do. Yeah. Like as every kid does, like everyone's like me. You just, that's that early mirroring. Mm -hmm. If you're getting any kind of early mirroring, you just believe that the whole world is exactly like you for a while until, (laughs) until everyone figures out which at whichever point that the whole world isn't. So I guess when she was about six years old, uh, she had an imaginary friend that would come out and play from her vagina. Oh, that imaginary friend. <laughs> Didn't you have one of those? Oh, yes. And she would crawl back up there when it was time to go to bed. Well, that's what happened. And she thought that, you know, that it was like her imagination. She thought it was, you know, she thought that she didn't actually think that there was someone crawling out of her vagina. She thought it was her, ima- like when she reflected on it, she thought it was her imagination. Oh, my God. But she actually had a real imaginary friend that uh, was apparently had, you know, slimy horns and paper white skin and would chat with her and hang out with her for a while. And she just she just thought that she was giving form to the voices that she'd heard, because even before six years old, she'd heard voices coming from her vagina. So she just thought, okay, this is my imagination trying to like make sense of it. But then when she was in high school, she had a crush on a girl actually and started dating to dating other girls. And then um, (laughs) she had sex with one of them and you know, the vagina spoke and it was, didn't go well. The girl, the girl was like, that's fucked up. Fuck off. You know, (laughs) like, you know what? Don't touch me. Go away. And so then she naturally, just didn't never went down the girl route again because she thought that she thought that that was like, okay, I'm not going to be accepted if you know, understood. Yeah. And so what she ended up doing is hanging out with like all the nerdy boys that were too shy to really ask her out. So she just was sort of like got away from, so you could see so far the, the author's really giving her a real, a real story. And I will tell you that the way that Carlton has written this is when you're when I'm talking to you guys about it, it's hilarious and we laugh about it. And I do laugh when I'm reading it too. Mm-hmm. But there's also a genuineness to the way it's written, which I really appreciate because that lends to the humor. Sure. Because if you're not, gen- as we all know with comedy, you have to play it straight. That's the only way you're going to be funny exactly. is if you play it straight. Mm-hmm. So he's playing it straight and which I, I really, it's really delightful. <laughs> anyway, she, so she gets, so this is the best part. And then I'll, I'll wrap this, this up for, for okay. today. The best part of her story is that when she goes to college, so she avoids sex altogether the rest of high school. When she goes to college, she ends up meeting a guy, like a goth type guy, right? And so he gets into it. He like thinks it's the coolest thing ever. And then all of his friends do as well. And so she like finds her tribe, right? Oh my God. Where, um, and then she starts... <laughs> So when she gets sick of him, she just moves to his friend because she just like bops around all the people that thinks it's amazing that think it's amazing and sort of worship her and think she's a goddess <laughs> because they've, you know, they've basically decided that all of their philosophical discussions of like of rebellion against reality it gives them justification, right? Yeah. So reality is a construct and there are ghosts and creepy things because i'm goth and i'm cool and so look this is my friend she has a haunted vagina and so it's all real (laughs) (laughs) 
But then, of course, the rumors start that it's fake and she's faking oh, it. Oh, yeah. And all that's that. what would happen. Yeah, that is what like, would Have happen. you actually seen it? Yeah, exactly. And so she, mm-hmm. start, and she starts charging money for... <laughs> to be, that's how she makes a living, like, for people. And then she reali- then she stops doing that because she realizes that the guys are just wanting to, like, rub up against her thighs while they listen. Right. So she stops doing that. And and she so she's sort of telling her this boyfriend of hers within the story, this whole story. And then as readers, we get to learn, like, the development of the... The haunted vagina and wow. where, where it came from. Just thought you'd. I love it. You know, I love the updates on that story time. <clears throat> Not written by me. It's called the haunted vagina. Carlton Millick the third. I he's a he's written a bunch of fun novels like this. Independent author. Give him your money if you would like to read this yourself. It's uh it's pretty funny. It's pretty great, and uh, I'll give you another segment next time. Uh, we watched. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, I programmed in the Discord the movie Thanks Killing because it's an important tradition. 2009 horror comedy, 85 minutes long. A possessed turkey terrorizes five college students during Thanksgiving break. And what I'd like to tell you is that this was Kathy's first time watching it. Nice tits, bitch. <laughs> She's been quoting it all morning while we've been recording. She came into the studio playing the music. From the movie. Yeah. Billy's song. So tell me what your reflection um, is. Oh my God. It was so embarrassing, embarrassingly terrible and wonderful all at the same time. It's such a, thankfully it doesn't take itself seriously. God, the, no. the turkey is a hybrid of like a puppet and practical effects. But my favorite is just the, the exaggerated tropes of the characters, the terrible acting, mm-hmm. the 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 scene where Billy sees the the cartoon turkey and he starts to go <laughs> towards it. That's, I lost it. And also, like when they're looking to to get together as a community to kill him, and they take <laughs> the research very seriously, and they're like. I think my dad has lots of books on turkeys. It's like no one's talking about going online and Googling. They're like, why does this have to be so hard? Why do we have to go through all these books? So they end up in a room at, at one of their homes and the dad has like this library of turkey books and they're playing this song and they're like all really intensely looking through how to kill this turkey. But when they get to the house and the turkey has dad's face on Mm -hmm. and they all really believe that's the dad. It's the best thing ever. They kill the dad or the turkey kills the dad. And it looks like cranberry sauce on his face. And then the turkey takes the dad's face like like Hannibal Lecter and And puts puts the face on himself as a turkey and then is literally a foot tall. It's a fucking turkey. And And they're all talking to him like, hey, Mr. So-and-so. She crouches her own father. She crouches down on the floor and is talking to him. You're shorter than usual or whatever. And then he goes, she goes, can you lead them out to the garage to show them oh, can you remind me where that is? And she's like, oh, I always forget about your deteriorating memory or whatever. But the acting is so out there. And there's, you know, the there's the like the, the slut that everyone thinks is super easy. And at one point, like Billy hopes to hook up with her. Mm-hmm. And she's like, no way, Billy, you can play with your own boobs tonight. Because he's like this really big. And they make reference to, because he's heavy, yeah. they make reference to his titties the they whole do. movie. They do. It's shameless. It, it is. I, I mean, I was I was finding myself laughing out loud, but also going like, "What is happening? What is going on?" <laughs> oh my god! My favorite line is, "You've been stuffed." You've been stuffed because yes, same the girl. Turkey has sex. Yeah, in the movie. Yeah, he kills the guy that's having sex with the girl and moves in because. It, you know, she's not looking at him in the position they're in. Right. And uh, moves in. And, and then his line after they have sex is, you've been stuffed. You've been stuffed. Wah, wah, wah. It's the perfect Thanksgiving movie. And they made a sequel. There's three of them. No. They originally called it Thanksgiving 3. Is that the musical? But there's no oh. two. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> she's just finding that out now and laughing at me. Okay. Oh my God. And so then they renamed it Thanksgiving the sequel. And there's, uh, I have a friend on another server on Discord, a bigger server, and she watched it 
and like uh, she said have you seen the sequel and i said no but i i'm i plan on it she's like uh, that within the first five minutes i it changed everything i know about life <laughs> Like I, I started to question everything I thought I knew. She was oh, wow. obviously being funny. I was like, oh, I can't wait to sit down and say that. And Rotten Tomatoes, like I think I said 85 minutes, but the version I watch is like 65 minutes, something like that. So don't worry. It's the longest 65 minutes you've ever watched in your life, but it's a lot of fun. So we finally watched it. And I'm so happy that Kathy is now a part of that. I thank you for that. <laughs> I also saw the new movie Black Friday, which is a 2021 yeah, science fun. fiction movie. Mm-hmm. It's 80 minutes long. It's got Bruce Campbell. Bruce Campbell's movies are not always great. So I was happy to report that this was a lot of fun. On Thanksgiving night, this is, I'm going to add this to my Thanksgiving movies because there aren't a ton of good or even just bad, wonderfully bad Thanksgiving movies. So on Thanksgiving night, a group of disgruntled toy store employees begrudgingly arrive for work to open the store at midnight for the busiest shopping day of the year. Meanwhile, an alien parasite crashes to earth in a meteor. Yo, this group of misfits led by store manager, Jonathan, which is Bruce Campbell in a grandpa sweater. He's so funny. Believe it. And longtime employee Ken, played by Devin Sawa, soon find themselves battling against hordes of holiday shoppers who have been turned into monstrous creatures hell-bent on a murderous rampage on Black Friday. So I've seen this movie twice now. And uh, because it, it was fun. When I watched it, I was like, oh, we got to program this for Thanksgiving because it's just fun. Yeah. And we like to have a laugh. Yeah. So you enjoyed it? I did. Good. Yeah, and, and the end is also absolutely ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Well. It's it's so, that's why I like it. I, I won't give anything away by no, saying no, no, this, no, but, but when, when they go, it's all the shoppers, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so funny. It's a lot of fun, especially <laughs> if you like Bruce Campbell, then, you know, obviously give it a, a whirl. That's pretty much why I watched it. It's brand new as well. And I just think it's a fun... We don't, like I said, we just don't have that many great Thanksgiving horrors, so it's awesome. Yeah. What did you watch? I watched a movie from 2017 called Lemon Mois or The Mansion. Oh, I'm like Lemon um, What? <laughs> it's uh, it's a French horror comedy. A band of students comes to celebrate the new year in an old manor house isolated from everything. But soon after their arrival, strange events disrupt the atmosphere before the party turns squarely to the nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fun. It has its moments. It has the same, uh, you know, with, with uh, when you're reading the subtitles, it does change the, the, the temperature of it a little bit. But it has the same essence of like... Was the babysitter one that we watched? The babysitter killer. Yeah, the babysitter killer. It has that like edgy comedy to it. It is. It's a. It's a bloodbath. But they all. <laughs> okay. the, the The characters. I was looking at some of the reviews on it, and some people thought that the characters were a little bit overly troped, if that's a word. Like it was a little exaggerated, and sometimes it was like cheap humor. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I it kept my attention. You know, it was fun. It's sort of like a whodunit, and you're trying to figure out what's going on in the mansion as people are dropping dead and mm-hmm. and it's actually a new year's movie it looks uh, like they're co- it's a new like- yeah it is a new year's movie yeah okay. so they're celebrating cool. the new year i thought it, i actually thought it was pretty funny great if you like really gruesome slash like it's not really a slasher but that sort of gruesome horror practical effect kind of stuff yeah it's fun you know that yeah. sounds like a lot of fun actually i mean i don't know yeah, I thought it was entertaining. It's worth a watch, I think. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Uh, I also watched a movie called Black Cadillac. The best part about this movie is Randy Quaid, honestly. <laughs> mm, I love him. I enjoyed this. So this is an offering, and I thought about you and your brother a lot when I was watching this because this is an offering to a possessed car. <laughs> At least that's what you, you that's what you think is going on for most of the movie. Uh, there's there's other things going on and and all of that gets revealed but the first half of the movie it plays a little like christine with the car kind of following them around and Mm -hmm. they're just like what the f is going on so teenage brothers and a friend josh hammond survive a barroom brawl and then they are followed by a mysterious car in the backwoods and so uh randy quaid also plays a sheriff but he's nuts 
basically. He's and Randy Quaid's a lot of fun, and yeah. this this is obviously a great role for him. And I'd say I'd say check it out because it's it's of the time, the mm-hmm. the early aughts. It's got that feeling mm-hmm. to it that we've been kind of talking about this episode a little bit. But I like Randy Quaid in it, and there's some actors in there that you're gonna recognize: um, Jason Doring. Josh Hammond, Shane Johnson, Randy Quaid. They all went on to do other things that you're going to be like, that guy. Okay. <laughs> it's that guy. Yeah. And it, it's not what it seems and all that. So it's got a nice little twist, but I had never heard of it. And what, what's the year? When, when did it come out? 2003. Okay. I, I, I had never heard of it. It was awesome. great to sort of pull something that I had never heard of. And also the reason why I chose to watch it was because we were looking for something with wintry vibes and yeah. it's set in the snow. Okay. So there you go. Very cool. That's what else did you watch? At the poster. Oh yeah. Cool. Um, I watch, I love Adam Scott. I watched the movie little evil from 2017. Okay. If you haven't seen it before, it's fucking hilarious. It's a spoof on the omen. <laughs> um, Gary Bloom played by Adam Scott, marries Samantha, who is a five-year-old son, Lucas. Gary struggles to connect with the quiet Lucas who ignores him. Gary receives a telephone call from his wedding videographer, Carl, warning that something very unusual is in the footage, but Gary is uninterested. Gary stops by one of his properties for sale, an old nunnery where Father J.D. Gospel, the leader of Doomsday Cult, uh, buys it on the spot. Gary is summoned to Lucas's school where the principal informs him that Lucas spoke out of turn in class and told his science science teacher to go to hell. After which she kills herself by jumping out the window and gets impaled on a fence. There you go. There's the omen reference. Alrighty then. Um, A psychiatrist stresses that Lucas see a counselor and Gary, apparently the main source of Lucas's erratic behavior should do the same. So everyone, Bridget Everett steals this movie. She plays L and she plays, um, one of the his coworkers who uh you know just very like the the tropey kind of butch lesbian yeah but she goes to like the dad support groups and amazing she has like the melissa mccarthy type role in this and she is fucking hilarious and at first she's like yeah man kids are really hard and adam scott's like no you don't get it like this kid something's <laughs> up and the little boy is so good in this. He plays the, you know, the Damien character. Sure. Owen Atlas, I think. Yeah. Owen Atlas is his name. I thought this was really funny. Um, And there's a lot of actors that you'll recognize. Uh, Evangeline Lilly is in it. Adam Scott, Bridget Everett. A lot of people. Donald Faison's in it. It's really, really funny. So I enjoyed it quite a bit. Ah, I'm going to check that out. That's awesome. I like to find new horror, horror comedies I haven't seen. Not new, but yeah, like this is ones a I haven't one. seen. Cool. So now I am going to be put on the spot with answers. Oh, yes. From your questiones. Horror facts with Kath. I always want to make you sing it again, but I will not. Number one, during a news conference, Diane Feinstein gave away the profile of this serial killer by reporting and describing the evidence, such as a ca- the caliber of gun, the type of shoe, and, a, and she held up a police sketch. I don't know. Uh, Richard Ramirez. Mm. He, was, he was wearing the, uh, the tennis shoe that they kept. And was it yeah. a problem that she gave it away? Yes, because then he knew that they were getting closer to finding him. Yeah, so, so he could make... So he, that was the last time they saw that shoe print at the crime scene, okay. I think is what ha- one of the things that happened. Number two, which decade was known for breaking horror into the mainstream in a significant way? I was going to say uh, the 80s. It was actually the 70s. It was right that was after, my second choice. <laughs> yeah, right after Vietnam, it became yeah. a, a pretty big deal. Right on. Um, number three, what movie is based on the true story of a young girl who passed away in the hospital shortly after meddling with the Ouija board? The case was in 1992 and remains unexplained. 1992. Wow. Mm-hmm. I don't know. The movie's called Veronica. Oh. Yeah. I'm not sure I've seen that I know, or It might not. be one we put on the Discord. It's a newer movie? 2017. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it looks like it's on Netflix. I just looked it up. Mm-hmm. Horror Supernatural. Cool. Looking forward to it. Number four, this horror film went through two titles before settling on the actual title. One option was The Birthmark. (laughs) Of course, you just try to think about who has a birthmark. And then, of course, I have no idea. 666. 
Oh, Damien the Omen? Yeah. Yay. And the last... because yeah, I always think of it as a tattoo. <laughs> yeah, right? Oh, that's funny. <laughs> scariest thing for parents at that time. They're going to walk into the room in the middle of the night and check their kid's scalp. Uh, number five, what incredibly popular 80s role-playing game was believed to be the work of the devil himself? <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. Oh, yay. That's a, that was a total guess, by yeah. the way. It's just I mean, incredible. Was, when you it, said incredibly popular. That was when people devil. had, I know friends of mine whose parents didn't allow it in the house. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, because of course we had it. D&D. Yeah. Well, of course you did. As a Catholic family. <laughs> well, there it is. You you were into the devil if you're Catholic. Yeah. I mean, very important. My, bro- figure my brother, my brother, yeah, they were. He was hardcore into D and D. Yeah, right on. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. This has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon, and I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. 